This is The Global Custodian. There's always a FinReg Angle podcast keeping you up to date with the latest developments in financial regulation. Hello and welcome to There's Always a FinReg Angle. I'm John Watkins, Managing Editor of Global Custodian, and I'm joined, as always, by a pair of FinReg experts, Sean Tuffy and Virginia O'Shea. How are you both? Doing good. Very good. Good. Did you notice the different introduction there? Was there one? What, sir? No. <laughs> well, I, I thought we do this almost bi-weekly now, so there's actually no point in counting. Oh, uh, right. <laughs> and, then, and then I dropped the virtually bit because we're always doing it virtually until Sean moves to London at some point. And we can start again <laughs> time. But, um, wow, what a, what a boring introduction to today's episode. I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, hey, at least this prepares you for the fact we're talking about ESG regulation today. Woohoo! the lid. Starting times. But given that's going to be fairly intense, I thought we would go through some news to start with. And been quite a bit happening for, for a summer month. Sean, I see via social media that you're tracking the Bitcoin ETF applications pretty closely. So where better to start? Uh, what's the latest and what kind of percentages are you giving that or those various applications now kind of getting through? Yeah, so a whole flurry of them went in a couple of weeks ago, um, and then the SEC essentially asked for more detail from uh, the whole group, which includes BlackRock, which I think we talked about last time, which why everyone's very excited about it this time around. I think BlackRock's like 570-something and one in their uh, ETF application, so they have a pretty good record. Um, so a whole number of, a whole host of groups have put in new applications for uh, for the Bitcoin ETF. The big difference being they've created this uh, supervise, shared supervisory agreement with the exchanges to help address the issue around price manipulation that the SEC has on Bitcoin. Um, and just the other day, um, the SEC released a public consultation essentially on all the open applications, um, which sort of really starts the clock on review process and it's also interesting um because they did them as a group rather than the order in which they were received which uh sort of indicates that they're looking at the issue holistically rather than sort of individually and that sort of the inference there is that if they are to release or are to approve a a bitcoin etf they will approve a number of them rather than just sort of the blackrock one or the wisdom tree one um, and there's sort of precedent for that because a couple of years ago when they approved the ill-fated non-transparent ETF structure, they approved three or four of them all at the same time rather than giving a firm some sort of advantage because they happened to file a bit earlier. So that's what everyone's very excited about. I'm still a little skeptical um, that they'll be approved, though the SEC has had a bad time of it with crypto recently. Um, so oh. people are feeling they might... Um, be on the back foot a little bit and sort of running out of wiggle room um, to, to to say no. So I think people are more positive than they have in the past, um, but I still sort of am more, more, most firmly in the camp that as long as Gary Gensler is there, it's probably a no, um, but it's probably closer than it's been in a while. Gotcha. And, and the other motivation for me bringing up ETFs at the very start of this episode, not that we're ever afraid to tackle the Bitcoin <laughs> ETF, topic is uh, we just published at Global Custodian our summer magazine, which is heavily based around uh, ETF administration. So we have an ETF administration survey 
plus a deep dive on what service providers are, are doing in the space and how they're evolving with the evolving needs of their clients. Um, interestingly, service scores were the lowest, I think, for three years in our survey. So make of that what you will. But interesting data nonetheless. And uh, speaking of Gary Genzer and the SEC, Virginia, did you see that he's um, fretting a little bit about AI? Yes, he gave a quite a long speech about it, didn't he, um, to one of the press associations earlier this week. I think it was actually, was it yesterday or the day before? I can't remember. I'm losing track now of, of what's happening. Um, but yes, he sort of gave a very long-winded speech about um, how AI is is potentially useful to supervisors um, and regulators in the future with regards to correlating data and things like that and using it to apply to um, examinations and, and spotting outliers and things like that. Um, but the bigger part of the speech was him talking about the big concerns that they all have about AI, and, and he listed quite a few. Not that um, other people haven't come up with these these concerns before, so um, I, I'm sure lots of other regulators have said the same thing, um, FCA included, actually, um, and, and the Bank of England, to be fair, and and I believe other commissioners. Um, but it was it was something along the lines of um, AI, uh, in, in particular generative AI, um, is helping scammers to defraud people. Um, it's also uh, rife with uh, problems with, with regards to bias, depending on the models, who builds, who builds the models. Um, then he also sort of went into this sort of tangent about financial stability and suggested that AI actually might be detrimental to financial stability in the long, in the long run with regards to the fact that every, if everybody's using the same um, AI models, then everything's going to correlate. And um, obviously, <laughs> people have become overly reliant on AI models that they can't explain or understand and then not be able to rework out of them if we have too much correlation. So I think, I think the same kind of thing was said about algorithmic trading back in the day, so um, quite a long time ago. So it's not something that hasn't been talked about. But um, certainly, he was sort of raising lots of points that, uh, in that speech that I think other people have said over, over the last couple of years. Did I miss anything, Sean? No, I think that's it. I think it's, you know, I think you're right that it's not too different than the worries about algorithmic training or really honestly index funds. So, you know, like sort of regulators always worry about hurting um, and everyone doing the same thing. So AI is the shiny new thing everyone's talking about. So I guess it's not surprising regulators are also talking about it. But if you wanted to be less cynical, which is hard for me to do, but it would, you would, um, you'd be, happier regulators are thinking about it now rather than waiting for it to metastasize to become a real problem the way they did with crypto. So on one hand, I mean, if you want to glass half full it, at least it's good they're thinking about it out loud now rather than waiting for it to become a problem. That's true. Although they haven't really come up with any solutions to how we, <laughs> how we address yeah. the problem of bias. But yeah, definitely talking about it is good. Well, if your problem is we saw with algorithmic trading and index funds, there really is no obvious solution. I mean, that's the real struggle with these issues. Like outside disclosures and breaks in markets. I mean, those are the only things you can really do. You can't do it. I don't think you can do it at a firm level. You can really only do it at the market level. Yeah, true. Yeah. Do you think it's a bit like cybercrime in that it's going to evolve so quickly it's actually going to be difficult for regulators to keep up with it? Well, it's quite correlated with cybercrime, to be fair. I mean, mm. that was some, some of the concerns he, were raise, he was raising during the speech were about cybercrime and how AI can be deployed um, and personal, hyper-personalization of, you know, scamming 
um, and phishing attacks and things like that um, yeah. so that you can't distinguish between something. Uh, he was also moaning about the fact that there was a, a rumour um, that he was he had resigned his position at, as, a cha- as chair of the SEC because <laughs> somebody had sent around an email that was very convincingly him, which is quite funny. <laughs> that was, uh, I'm not going to put a name on it, but that was announced in our office by one of our journalists. Oh my God, Greg Gensler's just resigned from the SEC. Like, that doesn't feel like something that would happen, but then we, we looked into it and realised we, we saw that, that rumour going around. So very funny that person was left very red-faced. <laughs> But I think more seriously, like the issue of AI for regulators and honestly just normal like police is that it's going to how much it will embolden fraud. And mm-hmm. so the investor protection mandate of regulators, well, not as sexy as the other half of their mandate is something they really need to focus on because it is going to be a huge problem. And, and likewise, if you look at all the protests that are happening um, in, in, I know it's a tangent here, but in Hollywood, right, they're, they're protesting about the fact of, of um, people using their images and using AI models to, to basically replicate what they do without having to pay the money. Yeah. Um, data privacy, data security, and, and um, I guess data ownership is going to become like, a, who owns your image? Uh, who owns some of the data that's out there about you? That's, that's kind of an underlying problem that AI could exacerbate. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think it's going to be a bonanza for IP lawyers, honestly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like that. I mean, the lawyers always win. In this case, it's going to be intellectual property lawyers and copyright lawyers who win. Yeah. Um, I feel like we're veering into an AI podcast as both of us do. You secretly both want, uh, and maybe the people want. Just to uh, wrap up some of the other news, the, uh, the UK has decided to kind of back this new research platform um, and move away from the uh, unbundling regulation. Uh, brought in by MIFID too. Um, Sean, just, to, just a, a quick word on that. It seems like it's a bit of a flexing of post-Brexit muscles, as they say. Yeah, I mean, obviously the great irony is that it was the UK who shoved research on bundling down the EU's throat um, pre-Brexit. Like no one else, no one else in the world thought it was a good idea except for the FCA. And somehow they managed to like bludgeon the EU into doing it. And now they're sort of walking away. Um, so yeah, so the UK has suggested pulling, basically pulling back on bundling. To be fair, Europe is also talking about it because I think as everyone said at the time, it's not going to accomplish what they hoped and it's probably not worthwhile. But I think what will be interesting for the UK, absolutely flexing its sort of post-Brexit muscle is how much it matters, practically speaking, for two reasons. One, it can only really immediately go into effect for UK-based firms using UK-based research. You know, obviously, European firms still, for the time being, will still need to use unbundled research. And the other more important factor is it will be interesting to see how the buy side and institutional investors behave because I don't really know what the sales pitch is when you go back to an ask manager be like hey we don't have to bundle research anymore so you don't have to pay for it but we're also going to charge you more for your execution again and I just don't see anyone agreeing to that deal so I actually think it's a lose-lose for research providers because I think if they try to say we're not going to we're going to unbundle we're going to sort of rebundle people have gotten used to paying less for research and having cheaper execution so I think it'll be very hard to convince asset managers, it'll be very hard for asset managers to convince their clients that this is in everyone's best interest to go back to the status quo after for four years making such a big deal of how this was a better way to go. So I think 
very realistically, this is a change that results in nothing except for sort of a, a fearic victory. Yeah. Yeah, good points. Thanks. And, uh, you know, not so much news articles but or news pieces, but what I've noticed from the earnings calls, I'm sure you two probably don't listen in as intensely as we do, but all the U.S. bank earnings calls, every single question was about capital requirements and how they can impact U.S. banks. It's it's an incredibly big topic. And I feel like we should dedicate a podcast to that, to Basil. And the other thing that keeps popping up for us a lot at the moment is the SEC custody rule. So just putting a flag in the ground for, for two future episodes there. Um, but to move on to our main talking point for this episode, Sean, you referred to ESG month. Tell, tell me more. Yeah, so uh, the the House Republicans in the U.S. have actually declared it ESG month, and I, I suppose it would be better phrased as ES, ESG bashing month. So they're dedicating a series of congressional hearings to attacking ESG, essentially, um, as sort of a, a woke idea that's set up by the Illuminati to destroy the economy or something. I haven't really followed the full logic, but it's, so they've made a, a big push We've touched on it before. ESG has become a huge flashpoint in the culture wars in the U.S. In a way, it's not anywhere else. So it's sort of there's been a lot of talk about it in the U.S. now, and I know Virginia watched some of the hearings about it, um, about ESG um, and sort of its its nefarious downsides on the economy. So I think it's a it's an interesting approach. Meanwhile, you have in Europe full steam ahead from ESMA and the Commission around yeah. sort of SFDR improvements and corporate disclosures. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was kind of a frustrating thing to listen to, as they always are with these House committee meetings and discussions, right? That they, they, Neither side listens to each other. And sometimes they actually somewhat agree, but they don't actually listen to each other enough to, to come to any sort of bipartisan agreement officially. So it, it, it was really bizarre listening to it because... Every every per, every other person sort of that was 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 talking along the same lines at each other about about certain things and and the big focus was obviously the anti E and the anti S part of it from the Republicans um, and and they as, as Sean referenced they, they they kind of see it as the war of the woke um, going going against capitalism it's an anti capitalist sort of thing in their eyes and the other side that those defending ESG were saying um, what the Republicans are saying is anti-capitalist. So there was sort of like both sides of an argument about what, <laughs> why each other were anti-capitalist. And, and to be fair, one of the guys who, uh, well, I don't know what his name is. They all have bizarre names as well. French Hill uh, was one of the people from Republicans. God knows what that, what that name is, is uh, if that's his first name or his middle name or something. But um, he was talking from the Republican side and was one of the vocal anti-ESG voices. Um, and and his his sort of take on it was that um, climate risk should not be it, it should not be the purview of the SEC. I think that's sort of the the thrust of a lot of these discussions. Is it mm. should be the Environmental Protection Agency? Didn't really take into account the fact that climate risk impacts financial institutions and it's an operational risk as well as uh, anything else. Um, so that's I guess where um, some of the pro ESG voices came in and said we're having the, some of the, the hottest summer in. The US, there's, yeah. there's fires everywhere, there's floods, there's all of these things, and we need to take them into account if we're forward planning for the industry. Um, sounded very rational to me on that side, um, although I am, you know, I, I'm a climate change believer. I know I think it ha is happening, um, and, and a lot of people that argue against ESG don't. 
Uh, I understand that. But uh, it was certainly interesting just to see that dynamic play out and how both were convinced that each other um, were taking the wrong tactic. On the on the Republican side, interestingly, as I've said before, there's a big focus on the G. So the governance stuff that they're talking about, some of it is very correlative with what's going on in the EU on, on, on the G bit of it, the governance bit, um, about sort of shareholder rights, increased shareholder transparency, some of these things that, you know, are part of the ESG agenda, are part of the anti-ESG agenda, which always baffles me. But uh, <laughs> there, was, there was quite a lot of discussion about, you know, robo-voting, for example, and, and the yeah. sinister nature of robo-voting and how we need to get rid of it, um, which I don't disagree with. There's a lot of influence of, you know, proxy providers um, and automatic voting. So um, I think I covered everything there, Sean. <laughs> yeah, no, I think so. I mean, I think, interestingly, on the proxy voting, I, the other day, BlackRock announced that they're extending their pilot program to one of their bigger um, index funds to allow mm-hmm. shareholders to vote in proxy. So you are sort of seeing some bigger asset managers move in that direction to sort of address policymakers' concerns around transparency, proxy voting. I mean, I think I was snarky about it the other day. I mean, I think it's a very good PR move that will functionally not change much because I don't think you'll see a lot of people actually vote their own on proxy votes or really be able to move the needle like you know my few thousand bucks in an S like a trillion dollar fund isn't really going to uh affect the outcome of exxon's proxy votes but i think it's interesting to see people moving in that direction um but i think the general theme which is interesting to me we talk about climate change like you're seeing and a lot of e-risk is investment risk and i think part of the problem is it sort of got bundled up with a larger ad campaign, if you will, for ESG products. But, you know, you're seeing insurers in the U.S., essentially say Florida and California are home insurers are uninsurable now because of fire risk in California and sort of hurricane risk in Florida. I mean, that's obviously not independent of the climate. So I think obviously the very basic factor, ESG, doesn't is an investment risk. But I think it's been sort of lost in the shuffle and partly ESG managers and executives who spent three years pretending they were saving the world by being underweight in Exxon and their index funds didn't help things, to be honest, if we're sort of to be critical of the ESG movement. So I think it is sort of a kind of a, a messy situation now. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out in the U.S. We're at a stalemate at the moment, though. As I say, unless a bipartisan group steps forward, there's not going to be any kind of consensus because there just didn't seem to be any agreement at all. <laughs> Yeah, I've just seen a story pop up actually. It says the FCA has delayed publishing ESG labeling regime till the end of the year as well. So just a lot of things being kicked down the road. Um, yeah. At the time. <laughs> but I think the challenge is on the labeling regime. It's not like Europe's, we shouldn't pretend the SFDR is perfect either. I mean, that thing's been tinkered with consistently since it was rolled out. Mm-hmm. Because part of the problem is like, in a lot of ways, ESG is all very real and climate change is real. But ESG funds are still sort of a commercial proposition. So creating labeling regimes um, for something that is fairly nebulous and hard to pin down is challenging. I mean, we've seen the EU, like Article 8 and 9 funds keep switching places depending on like the latest guidance out of ESMA. So I think it's a real challenge. And I'm convinced that like regulators are going to drive themselves mad trying to eliminate greenwashing, which is just a form of mis-selling. But like it's a really... If you're going to really try to eliminate all greenwashing and come up with a perfect definition of ESG, then you're a regulator. You're going to slowly drive yourself insane. Like it's there's no there's no win there. 
from a regulatory perspective, they're going to have to break it down to its ultimate component parts, though, right? So it's going to have to be sort of biodiversity funds. And I think if you do break it down to very granular things, it's much easier to deal with. But at the moment, we've got this massive bucket of stuff that it doesn't even fit together that well, if you ask me still. So that's, I mean, it's such a vast topic. Um, and if you look at the UN principles, um, there's, I, I don't know, 16, 17 of them or something? Yeah. I mean, there's just loads to look at and think about. No, no, totally. It's like boiling the ocean, which is, you know, part of the issue is ESG is somewhat of a market, like the, the term ESG is somewhat marketing related and it bundles together a lot of stuff, you know, the, the environment, the social, the government, governance that are all related, but it's like a very enormous Venn diagram. They're not necessarily interlinked. So I think, you know, trying to create an ESG regime and capturing everything is it's it's borderline impossible. So I think you're totally right that it just it's just going to keep sprawling unless you draw the hard principles. And it just the EU is not one for principle based regulation versus rules based. So it's just sort of a they love defining stuff. So I think it's going to be really challenging. Yeah. Well, uh, um, it's nice to do a bit more of a deep dive on this. So thanks, thanks both for doing so. Obviously, it's something we're going to continue to talk about in upcoming episodes for the next. 50 years um, <laughs> so, if, if the world makes it that long but I don't know talk about um, boiling the ocean though I yeah. mean honestly <laughs> it's, it, it's, it is boiling come on so thanks very much um, Virginia what are you up to at the moment outside of uh, these thrilling podcasts I'm continuing my work on uh, on the governance topic, so I will have a report out soon, as I mentioned, probably on, on the, the proxy uh, voting and governance space, uh, likewise with tokenized assets. And, and I'm getting ready for Cybos because that's coming soon, right? Oh, yes. Goodness uh, me. We'll, we'll roll out the annual Cybos preview episode. Shall we? <laughs> <laughs> I saw your name on the agenda, Virginia, so... Uh... Looking forward to, to the session. Um, Sean, where can we find your thoughts and views? As always, you can uh, check me out over on uh, Twitter. And my handle is at SMTuffy. Excellent. Well, thank you both. And um, we've got quite a lot more topics to, to uh, crack on with in the coming weeks. Virginia and Sean, thanks for your time. You were listening to There's Always a Fimreg Angle podcast with Global Custodian. 